0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On this show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we are giving away our mid-year award for Indie Rock Semi-Excellence, the <laughs> Indiecasties. My name is Stephen Hayden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, he's a die-hard fan of Machina, the Machines of God, Ian Cohen.
1: Ian, how are you? I-, I honestly can't believe we haven't subtitled this episode The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music. That is a Machina 2 reference. I think all of our intrepid IndieCast Smashing Pumpkins fans will recognize that one, the 93-minute album that uh, Billy Corgan released in September of 2000 because uh, the label wouldn't uh, put out one of his records for free.
0: And right before they broke up for the first time. um,
1: (laughs) Not the last. Is it uh, it sacrilege to say that Machina 2, a little bit better than Machina? I don't know if that's sacrilege. I think that Machina, particularly at the time, got so much shit from both the public and... Smashing Pumpkins fans, I think every single critic except Jim DeRogatis uh, hated it, uh, that you couldn't help but love Machina 2 more almost by default. Even though, like, God, that record was so... that that Like, Billy Corgan was ahead of his time in so many ways, and this one was... He just gave that album to, like, really influential people in the Chicago music scene who then distributed it and online, and... You know the problem with that record is that it sounds exactly like a 128 like KBP rip from 2000. I'm like I would love to hear a remastered or actually properly mastered version of that because it sounds like complete dog shit. But
0: I mean, but the fuzziness kind of works on a lot of those songs, though. I mean, like when they're covering Soul Power, okay, you know <laughs> yes, that sh- that should be 128 bits. Um, we're talking about Smashing Pumpkins because I wrote a big retrospective list about the band wrote eight thousand words on my 50 favorite smashing pumpkin songs by the time this podcast posts that will have been a week ago Mm. but we are recording this episode uh the day after that published because ian Mm -hmm. you're 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 doing sort of like a uh it remind, it's like a very cinematic trip I feel like you're taking next week like <laughs> uh, you're going
1: home right you're go, aren't you going home you're gonna see some college friends yeah uh, I I didn't I didn't think of it cinematically so much as like hey East Coast band doing their first tour out of state but yeah I'm flying home to Philadelphia to see my family and then I'm driving to Virginia for my uh, 20. It, the college the 20-year college reunion is actually happening but like i'm not going to any of the events because the university of virginia already got enough of my money i'm not paying 200 fucking dollars for a dinner uh but nonetheless like i i i almost wish we could just have me set up like my recording station there because i think i would like completely change my tune in like the land of backyards and lawns and oh you know, yeah decks and things like that like i'd all of a sudden like like obviously as i'm about to embark on this trip i've been getting very nostalgic for music from that era and uh, i think i talked about this on two episodes ago how uh i was like big time alt country in 2000 absolutely you're in the alt country
0: cradle you know in that part of the country i mean i would love it if you came back from this trip and you were just like steve you're right about Heartland Rock. I just want to listen to Heartland Rock all the time. Because yeah. I've been in the Heartland. It's changed my mind. I mean, I guess I think about this cinematically because you're going to be seeing college friends. It seems yeah. like very uh, big chill, you know, like mo- like like old millennial big chill type vibe. You're going to have realizations about your life, maybe, hanging out with these people. Uh, and instead of listening like, to Motown hits the way Boomers did in that movie, you're going to be listening to like My Morning Jacket and... Uh, <laughs> Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or something you know I mean that's that's what I see you doing
1: that is kind of the truth I mean I thought we you know it would be smart for us to do a 2002 based episode but if I really look at like what 2002 was like at this time of year which is right after graduation like pre everyone dispersing to their parts of the country yeah there was somebody morning jacket I was definitely playing the shit out of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But the friends I'm seeing, it's like, it would actually be closer to accurate if we played Motown because uh, I'm thinking like these friends specifically, we went to like Beach Week after graduation and like we just started by prior to us getting there the summer of Steve Miller as a joke. And then for the preceding week, one of my friends thought that was like really funny, and just played Steve Miller Band's greatest hits the entire fucking time, like. So the
0: like the one with the blue cover, the one with and there's the blue like a cover horse. And the horse, yeah. There's like a horse on the cover. Uh, seventy four to seventy eight, I believe, is the time span for Indeed. that album. Uh, so you've got. <laughs> Actually, you should tell them my idea about covering the Joker in the voice of the Joker, which I had that idea. That was like my hack stand-up comedian idea. But the more I think about that, I feel and if there's any bands out there listening to this uh, show, if you do that, you will get you will guarantee coverage on this show. If you cover the Joker in the voice of the Joker, we will devote a segment to you in the show if we, if we can you know you know bring this to realization i think that'd be an amazing thing
1: if if someone does that we will cut out i don't know the part where we talk about the saint vincent cover of funky town for the minion soundtrack like we will put you above that
0: that dropped uh it, it will have been out for a week oh. by the time this post but i think that just dropped right it, it funky did town? man
1: we're really running the risk of offending the banter gods by recording a week early
0: yeah, I know. That's always the fear that, uh, like, what if, like, the 1975, like, they released their album next week? That'd be just a disaster for us. Then you would have to buy a mic and a recorder, and we'd have to do an emergency podcast if that happened. Uh, barring that, hopefully, it'll probably be okay. This is, like, the quiet time of the year, I feel like, mm-hmm. in terms of releases. So you're taking a vacation at, at a good time. Um, I want to get back to Smashing Pumpkins here because. While the story will be old by the time this posts, Smashing Pumpkins' talk is evergreen, especially mm. on this show. And I'm curious like, what you thought about my take on the band. I have to say, you know, I do these lists a lot. I don't really care about the rankings that much. It is more just a vehicle for me to expound on a band. So like, I will sometimes group songs together because they fit a certain point I'm trying to make. Even if, like, if I was just focus solely on the ranking I might shift things around I mean at the top that's pretty solid for me but like I can't really tell what's the 33rd best song versus like the 37th best song that's pretty arbitrary but all that aside I know you're a big Smashing Pumpkins fan what did you think yeah. About my ranking and how would you diverge from it?
1: Yeah, like when you said I've written eight thousand words, I'm like, man, step your game up. I think I've like written, <laughs> <laughs> I've written. I, I, I sometimes I like want to just like sit down and figure out how many words I've devoted to the Smashing Pumpkins over the course of my writing career. And like, well, my yeah. my, wor- my what, what I got paid per word. <laughs> That's
0: yeah, you're talking about your entire career. Oh, I, I, I've written more than eight thousand words about pumpkins. Oh, yeah you over were over the course cook. of my career <laughs> yeah I mean Corgan, and you and I are in agreement on this. He is one of the most fascinating rock stars of our time like i I'm endlessly uh I, I could talk about him constantly because just the just the mix of genius and like petulance in him is uh it, it's so fascinating. I mean, doing this list, it really was a reminder that at his peak. He was a songwriting machine you know the likes of which we have not seen there's not many people that i think match his output from say i mean especially that like from like, the smashing pumpkin uh, the siamese dream melancholy era and then all the b-sides in that time where it's a quantity of songs and a quality of songs like i i put pistachio medley on my <laughs> list which is an infamous b-side uh, it was on the zero single it's like a 23 minute song and it's, it's like a compilation of unused riffs and demos that they recorded in this period. And there's like over 50. And I just included that because I wanted to make the point that this guy had so much material at this time that he could just throw it away. Because there's like a lot of cool riffs in that part. It just makes you think like if he had spaced out his hits a little better, I mean, I think people would think about them a little bit differently. Because he... I really feel like like, you listen to the B-sides, there's like songs there that only a small fraction of people were ever going to hear. And they could have been like foundational tracks of their own albums. You know, that's how prolific he was at that time.
1: Yeah. I, I As a Smashing Pumpkins super fan, like I read and probably like unintentionally memorized like all of his guitar world, um, uh, columns as well you mentioned the one where he interviews uh, Eddie Van Halen I remember that guitar world very vividly Uh read that one front to back and he would just say yeah I wrote I, I wrote pennies in like five minutes which he probably did Um but I mean I, I'm of the opinion the Smashing Pumpkins are like the best alt-rock band of the 90s not maybe not the most legendary or the most influential or what have you but I mean if you look from Gish to adore and even maybe a little bit after that uh the the track record is just so astoundingly uh prolific and strong and diverse I mean I don't think anyone can really touch it um and you mentioned how if Billy Corgan spaced out these hits more properly maybe we'd think of him differently I think if Billy Corgan like and Billy Billy Corgan has said this so I'm not like trying to be morbid here but he's basically said if i had died in 1998 i would be like i would be like seen as like kurt cobain i would be seen as like uh you know as legendary as like radiohead or whatever but um yeah i followed his 2010s output his 2000s output and it's pretty fucking grim i gotta hand it to you like even more so than like discussing the top five or the top 10 which we're pretty much in agreement on a lot of it like a lot of my unusually high cuts would be like obscured and apples and oranges which were there i think you uh right. did a disservice to try 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 the best song on machina but um right which is really the most kind of like jangly uh yeah kind of countryish smashing pumpkin song but um yeah I, I i appreciate that you had to give some acknowledgement to oceana uh, i like that i think that's their best record post uh machina
0: hands down. Does Zwan know count? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about Smashing Pumpkins, gotcha. I guess. Uh, which, by the way, you know, I'm always paranoid if people actually read these things that I write or if they're just looking at the rankings. And several people on Twitter did say that they would burn me uh, their Zwan CD because I mentioned in there that I lost my Zwan CD and you can't stream that album. No, there's a band so... called
1: Zwan with 479 listeners. Oh, really? <laughs> on Spotify, uh, with, oh, with no. their big hits "Eternal Waltz" or no "Eternal Walls" with a Z, "Aerial Tour" with like the Swedish O, and "Mall Full of Drugs." Zwan Sound cu- Counterinsurgency Remix.
0: So they're just conning the small segment of Corrigan fans who want to find Zwan, and they're they're being tricked into listening to this other band that yeah. it's not actually the real <laughs> Zwan. But anyway, I was very appreciative of the people who said, "Hey, you." I'll burn you a one CD. I was like, these are my people. Um, yeah, you know, going back to your point about, like, you feel like they're the best alternative band. One thing that I really appreciated on this revisiting of their catalog was Billy Corgan's uh, just ability to write great guitar riffs. Uh, because that is something that I think has become almost extinct, even in great bands. Like, are there any bands that you could think of that write really memorable guitar riffs. I mean, obviously, we're not going to compare them to Smashing Pumpkins because they're, I think, one of the greats, certainly, of their era. I, to me, they're the best riff band of the alternative rock era. Um, you know, starting with Today into, you know, like Zero... Like, There's just so many great riffs that he wrote. Am I right in saying, like, I don't recognize that in any band now?
1: So I've seen uh, people try to talk about, like, you know, the greatest riffs of modern times or what have you, and most of the time I see, like, chord progressions, uh, which, you know, to me aren't riffs. Like, Zero is a riff, uh, but, like, say, Here is No Why is, like, a chord progression. Right. Um, Cherub Rock is a riff quiet is a riff um right the, the the best like when i think of like a riff uh what immediately comes to mind i say like turnstiles uh a uh, real thing uh from 2018 or mystery like turnstiles got riffs and their riffs are similar to how rage against machine did riffs but yeah maybe like i guarantee you like if we have a currently reading guitar world segment as opposed to uh people who read it when i did they'll come up with like a bunch of metal bands also one of my favorite we got to give a shout out to my favorite billy corgan quote of all time where he isn't he's doing his guitar world column and like steve lukather from toto was <laughs> he's like steve yeah. lukather apparently thinks i'm a shitty guitarist but if hold the line was the best riff i'd ever written i'd keep my mouth shut like <laughs> Billy Corgan was so ahead of his fucking time with these petty beefs man.
0: going after Steve Lukather it's like no it, it, like nothing gets past Billy Corgan I mean the thing I would just say about Corgan in terms of writing riffs is that he could write heavy riffs that were also melodic and catchy you know and and I think that is pretty unique the, it, just the ability for him to do that over and over again to the point again where he could just throw riffs away that I think could have been promising if he would have focused on them, but it's like he already had like all these other songs. You know, it was just like a bounty of riches in the 90s for him, and uh, pretty impressive. Before we get to the indie casties, I feel like we should talk quick about Joyce Manor, because their new record will be out the day that this podcast posts. It's called 40 Ounces to Fresno. You did a feature with Joyce Manor, which will presumably have run during the week that you're gone. Like, do you want to talk about that at I all? Do. I do. I, I like this record a lot, by the way.
1: Great. Uh, that that's good to hear. Um, yeah, uh, you can listen to the No Joyce Manor album probably three times, possibly four, in the amount of time it takes to listen to this episode of IndieCast. But like, that means just Joyce Manor is back on their back, back doing what they do best, which is making seventeen minute albums. Um, the this this one, um, I really enjoy it because um, in two thousand eighteen. Uh, that album, A Million Dollars to Kill Me, like it just seemed like they were in a bit of a rut, which was in the air when I interviewed them. I th- This is this is one of the two bands I've interviewed more than twice. The other one was M83. Um, and I've watched Joyce Manor <laughs> throughout the years. Once I interviewed them in 2014 for Grantland, RIP Grantland. Uh, and then four years later when they were kind of famous, not famous so much, but like really well-established and they didn't seem as like pumped. <laughs> about the record, um, which I'm like, oh, maybe they're just like not happy to talk to a music journalist. I imagine that gets boring awfully quick. Uh, But it turns out that, you know, I I really start to feel for bands who are like in this kind of two year cycle of like, okay, we got to put out an album because we got a tour because like we don't have job skills and we got to keep this thing going. We're in a pop punk band and, you know, people lose interest in that stuff pretty quickly. And, you know, it really wore on them. I'm just happy that they're back. I thought they were done after they did the um, songs from Northern Torrens compilation. But, you know, they're doing covers. They're playing one-minute songs. They're having fun again. Uh, they're making fun of other indie rockers. And, I know I don't think that this is an event album in the way that maybe Cody was or Never Hung Over Again is. But um, I just hope that they get to like their 10th album, and then, you know, Steve and I can discuss in 2038, uh, we can rank Joyce Manor albums.
0: Yeah, you know, my thing with their records sometimes is that I feel like the production is a little flat, mm. and it does a disservice to the songs, because, uh, you know, uh, the main dude, Barry? Yes. What's his last name?
1: Barry Johnson.
0: Barry Johnson, thank you. I think he's a really good songwriter, and I know I've interviewed him in the past, and uh, I know he's like a big Guided by Voices fan, which is uh, partly why I'm sure his own songs are so short, being influenced by them. This record really kind of has like a power pop feel to me, and it, it has like a, a certain slickness to it Rob that I think Schnaff. actually, yeah, Rob Schnaff, great producer, uh, of uh, you know he's worked with Kurt Weill a lot lately, but he's probably best known for working with Elliot Smith and he also produced guided by voices isolation drills, which is like one of their biggest sounding records. So maybe I'll call this the isolation drills of Joyce Manners <laughs> catalog. I think Barry might appreciate that comparison. Uh, but yeah, definitely check them out. If you, if, if, if you know, maybe if you're not normally a, a uh, like a pop punk person, uh, this record I think would appeal to you. Cause again, I think it does have more of a kind of like a power pop type sheen to it. And it, it, like Ian said, it goes by nine songs in seventeen minutes. Uh, very fun summer listen, I think. We should get to the indie casties. We should get to
1: the indie casties
0: because we got a lot of meat in this episode. We got to kind of blow through these here a little bit. Like all award shows, we run the <laughs> risk of running long here, so we have to move it quickly. What's our but- playoff
1: music? Like, what if, if if some of these are starting to drag? We just need to like start playing like the riff from like Turnstile's Mystery or something like that. There
0: you go. That'd be good. Uh, Before we get into our categories, let's just talk quick about the year so far. I think there's a general feeling out there, and I I certainly feel this way, that this is the strongest music year already that we've had in a while. Although, for the purposes of the IndieCasties, it also doesn't have as many train wrecks as recent years. So some of the things that we like to talk about are... And like less supply, it, it, it's a unintended consequence of having like a lot of strong records and album cycles that make sense for the most part.
1: Yeah, I, I think 2020 had a lot of classics as well, like, uh, is definitely stronger than 2021. But yeah, I mean, as we said on the last episode, we're all we're we are just like content first and. It was a little difficult to come up with like some of our more narrative or trend piece type categories because, yeah, people seem to be having a little more fun uh, this year than most. But I, I think the immediate question I have is, it feels like it's been a strong year. It feels like there's more enthusiasm, uh, more enjoyment, less gawking. But um, I guess other than Big Thief, have we come up with like any runaway number one type albums like uh, have we like what are the instant classics? Because you know, we got like Norman fucking Rockwell in nineteen, we got like Fetch the Bolt Cutters, Punisher, you know, I'm thinking Damn, year before that. Like uh you know, what what like are are we in, are we still in a like really good but not great year for music?
0: Well, I I mean, I think The Big Thief record is an instant classic and there's a lot of people who agree there's also you know people that don't get that band at all so it's a little hard to read on how widespread their support is Um, I feel like the Wet Leg record has a lot of momentum to it and will end up being on a lot of people's lists I mean I hear about that record still from people um, even though like you and I were sort of uh, you know ho-hum on that album uh, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. I think the weekend, Don FM, in terms of like pop records, is a great record. Um, but again, I don't. It's hard for me to read how critics are going to go for that. I, I do feel like that will probably do well though, uh, with with critics. Beyond that, you know, I think that there is maybe a certain amount of parody this year where. uh there isn't that one dominant album that happens to be great and also checks a lot of boxes that are important to critics. Um, maybe it's just a matter of like the great albums not having like an obvious narrative hook, you know, and that's what maybe diminishes them a little bit in terms of the discourse.
1: Yeah, or maybe they're just not out yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I,
0: well, let's get into it here, yeah. because this what we're talking about here, it's addressed in some of our early categories. Our, our, our first category is Most Valuable Album Cycle, MVAC. And uh, if you remember from last year, we had St. Vincent, Daddy's Home. Ooh, we classic. had Lana Del Rey, you know, sympathizing with the January 6th rioters. You know, we had some heavy hitters last year. And... Our nominees this year, they're not entertaining in the same way that those album cycles were. Uh, in some cases, I would actually say that, that these were positive album cycles for, for these artists. We have Arcade Fire, Harry Styles, Wet Leg, The 1975, and Kendrick Lamar. Um, now, out of these, I would actually argue that Arcade Fire had the most improved album cycle With We over everything now, even though We, I don't think, is a very good album, I mean, it would be hard to do worse than everything now. I mean, that's, like, one of the all-time great train wreck album cycles of recent years. But, you know, they did, like, the club show, they did these interviews where they were talking about, we're coming back, we found our fire again, that album did do fairly well with critics, not up to the standard of like their two thousands albums, but it was, I think perceived by most people to be a comeback uh, from everything now.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I don't know. It's, it's most improved in that it didn't completely tank enthusiasm for the album prior to to when it dropped. But, you know, now that I've actually heard, we actually don't, I actually like dislike this album cycle more than everything nows because (laughs) I think everything now was the album and the push for it was based on, these highfalutin ideas that arcade fire as artists were in no way shape or form able to pull off but we i found to be like just more built on a foundation of phoniness of like oh we're back we've we, we got we you know we're, we're reapplying to be the world's biggest band and, and all but it, it's like just as uninspired uh but i don't know i'm very interested to see how that album plays out for the rest of the year i have like almost kind of forgotten about it already but Um, yeah, with, with some of these other ones, you're right in that, like, none of these have given us the content, uh, that we create. There isn't a daddy's home type, like first ballot hall of famer, but (laughs) I'm going to go with wet leg because it's a different kind of album cycle because, Lana Del Rey, St. Vincent, Arcade Fire. Like, we're familiar with their beats. They can play on their own history. This is the first album in a very, very long time where it's like a debut. Uh, And we got, um, like, I can't think of the last time a non-pop star artist gave us so many talking points. Like, are they an industry plant? Like, is there a misogyny going on here with the way people talk about them? It's a UK hype band. Real five-tool-player album cycle. It gave us so much to talk about.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go with Wet Leg 2. And you know, it's funny because there was that conversation, like you said, about is this an industry plant? Just because it seemed like their rise was so quick and they were getting signed. Didn't they get signed without like actually... Uh, recording anything or like they'd never like the label had never But heard like one song and then they got signed it was something like that i
1: did not read any of the 10 articles <laughs> in major publications that talked about the story of how they got signed like i've pieced together from like fumes on twitter that they made a demo and then they signed on a ferris wheel like this is all like (laughs) i'm not just making this shit up
0: right it was very it was very rapid and and all the headlines for these profiles uh were all like defensive about the perception that they were an industry plant i feel like it's like wet leg is a big band they know it's weird you know it's like headlines like that yeah uh which i think fed that a little bit we were told wet leg can't shoot (laughs) i will say though that the conversation around them, it reminded me the most of the strokes from Ooh, 20 years yes. ago. Like when, when is this, it came out. Uh, there was a similar vibe to them coming out of nowhere and them being called an industry plant because Julian Casablanca's dad runs like a modeling agency. <laughs> like that was supposedly, you know, he's like some Machiavellian figure. Cause he's in the modeling industry. I, d- I didn't even really understand that at the time. Um, so I mean, There have been male bands that have been accused of this too. It's not just women, but I understand there is that sensitivity toward taking a condescending attitude towards a a female act. So I think that's so there was defensiveness about that going on. You know, again, I think that record is pretty good. Mm -hmm. I totally understand why it was a buzzy record very catchy songs you know they're a photogenic band they're a fun band there's a sense of humor to what they're doing they're a very like likable band that i could see i could see why people would want to sign them and i could see why people would get into them
1: i think it's more similar to um arctic monkeys in 2006 i think there was especially in america a little more like skepticism towards them but it's really just like kind of fascinating to watch a rock band uh, be it, like, just go up the ranks that quickly in a way that we just do not see in America. Yeah, um, good for them. Yeah, good, good for good them. For them.
0: <laughs> you know, again, uh, that's not my favorite record of the year. I, you know, I, I like the singles. I think there's a lot of filler on that record, but you know, to see a a rock band get that kind of shine is always cool to see. Yeah. So, congratulations on your indie, Casty. Wet leg. I'm sure this is the feather in their cap that they've been waiting for. <laughs> Let's move on to our second category. This is one of my favorite. This is probably my favorite category. We, we, we maybe should have saved this for the end. This is like the best picture, <laughs> but I don't know. We'll get to it right away. It's the music writer Twitter story of, I guess, the half year. Um, our nominees are the broification of Big Thief, which was a conversation that happened online about, I guess, whether too many men are into Big Thief. Right. It, it was yeah. sort of like a Bernie. It's kind of like a Bernie bros thing with big. Yeah. Thief, Like where there's, there, there was like this accusation that too many men like big thief and they get really defensive. If, if big thief gets criticized. Yeah. I think or that, just
1: too many men are writing about big thief or right. But, I don't know. Like it, 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 it like that, ha- that's definitely a front runner because like, I think all music writer, Twitter stories of the year have to be judged on how many guys they invent. You know right. for this whole purpose exactly. of this narrative. Well,
0: it's like, or like, you know, like should men just like men bands?
1: You know, is is you that know, that's always like, like my three out of four members a big thief for guys,
0: <laughs> right? I don't know. So yeah, exactly. They're already pretty brofied as they are. Um, the Connor Ober skate shoes feud between Kississippi and Better Oblivion Community Center, where Kiss- Kississippi, uh, Philadelphia. Singer-songwriter made a crack about kind of Oberst wearing skate shoes. And then someone from the Better Oblivion Community Center account said like fuck you or something. Like just yeah. got really angry about it. Yeah,
1: it's like you stop it's, it's something about like stop being boring. And I think I, I appreciate you mentioning someone from the Better Oblivion Community Center Twitter account because we've not uh we we have not cleared this crime <laughs> Uh, we've heard uh, theories about who it is, but n- cannot confirm nor deny that it was Phoebe Bridgers or Conor Oberst.
0: Yeah, and again, I, I'm I'm pretty much ruling out Conor Oberst. Yeah. I do not think he would be on Twitter at no. all. But we don't know. It's all it's all alleged at this point. Um, Bandcamp getting bought by Epic Games. Uh, Epic Games being this big corporate conglomerate that does like computer. Uh, you know, video games like video apps. Buying Minecraft, Delo- I think. Yeah, Minecraft. That's the big one. Or is it Fortnite? Bu- I, I can't
1: fuck. I can't. remember. One of
0: those. <laughs> okay. One of those. Yeah, basically, the, the 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 fear that the the Bandcamp, which is this beloved outlet for indie bands to sell their records, is it's going to be commercialized or commodified, even though they are already a company themselves. Anyway, that was a big conversation this year. The last one this is the heavy hitter. <laughs> it's gonna be hard to top this one and, I, and I, we were talking about this. you didn't know about this story.
1: Yeah I, I feel like this is like that this game we play at work called Two Truths and One lie where you know you, you come up with like two truths about yourself and you throw in a lie and like people have to determine which one's the truth and the lie like I, I don't not not believe this, but I, I just don't know how this wasn't like a week long thing. I know I and this is maybe the
0: one struck against this story is that it wasn't that talked about, I don't think, even though it has all the elements um Eve Barlow, who I think won an indie Casty last year,
1: yeah, she won this this exact category last year, and we have to explain that Eve Barlow is a former music writer. she has moved on no. to a much more uh complicated and rich career,
0: yeah, she's Scottish. I believe Eve Barlow getting kicked out of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial because she was texting and tweeting in the front row of the courtroom. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's what, like, what else can we add? It, it just gets more amazing as it goes along because, because she, anyway, she's like a close friend of Amber Heard's. And it's just amazing that Eve Barlow was able to insert herself into this story. You know, again, like a big time story. Uh, just incredible hustle for a music critic. Yeah, I, I, she's like a, you know, you talk about first ballot Hall of Famers. Uh, you know, they might name the Hall of Fame after <laughs> Eve Barlow by the time she's done. So those are the nominees. Um, who's who, like who's your winner out of that?
1: Yeah, and also let's point out that like Eve Barlow won this award last year because she inserted herself into the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Right. Like, this exactly. is someone who has somehow been able to make like. Uh, just phenomenal Andy Kaufman esque humor out of like the like these just two awful nobody wins situations. Like this is like we're we're seeing like a legend in their prime. But yeah, the the most problematic
0: stories of their time. Yeah, she's like early nineties Tom Hanks right now at the Oscars, just unbelievable. I mean, does she automatically win this? Or because I feel like it's between her and broification of Big Thief like yeah. that's that's where it is for me yeah
1: I, I I'm I'm gonna go with a little bit of a like who the hell is our Arca- or who the hell is Bonnie Bear like uh type uh type situation here because um I'm gonna go with Connor Ober's skate shoes because Ooh. yeah I, I <laughs> it just, like it I, I maybe it was the fact that it popped up on like first thing Monday morning and then it set the week in motion but. I'm going to do this because I think it's just kind of a lifetime achievement award or a half-year achievement award. Because after Connor Ober's Skate Shoes, Connor Oberst then gave us Bright Eyes Karaoke. So it almost spawned a better follow-up. Like he is, you know, UFO F2 hands type year for Connor Oberst so far. In a year where he didn't release any new music. So I'm going to, I, I'm just, maybe I'm just like projecting here like that we're going to get two even better Conor over stories by the time the year is done. But I, I, I'm going to go with quantity as opposed to quality. So that's a, uh,
0: that's a real dark horse pick. Mm-hmm. I like it. You know, I'm going to go with broification of big thief because I feel like I'm implicated in this. You know, I am one of the bros who wrote about this record and raved about it. Although I don't think I get defensive about people not liking this band. I totally understand why people don't like it. Um, but yeah, since I am personally implicated in this Music Writer Twitter story, you know, not directly, but by, by association, I have to go with it. Because, you know, when you get roasted, you got to own it. So I'll own that one. It's great. Uh, but that's a great record. It's also a reminder, too, that, like, Twitter is great for taking something that is pretty wonderful, like a great record, and uh, making you annoyed, <laughs> about the thing you like. It's like, oh, like oh, you, you Twitter strikes again. It ruined something that I was enjoying just on a, on a totally sincere guileless level. Uh so you, music writer Twitter strikes again. You have to
1: tip your cap to it. Yeah, it's even uh, better. So stu- it's even better when it ruins something like before you listen to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: All right, well, let's move on to our next category.
0: Ian, do you want to introduce this one?
1: I do. So we're going to talk about the most memory hold album of 2022. And th- this is a, like, I-, I love the degree of difficulty with this one because we do this one at the end of the year as well, where an album may have had a, ch- a chance to have, like, a longer gestation period of fading away from view. But to win this one, you got to, like, drop that album and get forgotten about immediately. So um, we're, we got... The Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Lumineers, Father John Misty. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Donda 2, I'm um, like, I had to actually uh, Google to make sure that actually dropped. Um, and there was a Guns N' Roses EP in February, apparently. I have like original songs? I think so, yeah. Um, and, no idea. And no I, idea that happened. Yeah, and it's kind of a gag. I'm gonna throw Kendrick Lamar's album out there because i I tweeted like, I cannot believe the Kendrick album, the Kendrick Lamar album dropped two weeks ago on Twitter, and like that kind of received like a inordinately good response. So I think that there's some kind of sense that, like I'm not calling it a flop by any means, but like relative. We're just gonna say relatively memory hold album of 2022. So
0: yeah, I mean, if you're comparing it to uh, to pipa Butterfly or you know Good Kid, Mad City, yeah, it does feel like people have moved on a little bit. Although I, it does seem like one of those records that maybe people are still digesting. And then in July and August, we're gonna get a bunch of appreciations of that record. Uh, I'm curious to see how that unfolds. The Father John Misty thing is a little painful for me because I love Father John Misty. And I think that's a really good record, Chloe, in the in the next 20th century. But just the fact that he's not doing interviews anymore, it is similar to the Kendrick Lamar thing where if you talk about the records he put out in the 2010s, they just felt like events in a way that this one kind of didn't. It, it, you know, I think people who are into him like the record, it was well-received. But it just wasn't the kind of media event that his other records were. I still think that the people who like him will probably still be talking about this album at the end of the year. Um like I would I could see it sneaking into lists at the end of
1: the year. I would see this as very similar to well, Lana Del Rey notoriously did say stuff publicly in twenty twenty one. But um, you know, there was this sense and we talked about this on past episodes, how Uh, She was kind of entering the, not a wilderness phase, but definitely like after the upward arc of her career, maybe kind of plateauing. I could see Father John Misty sneaking on the list the same way that Chemtrails Over the Country Club did last year. Like where the fans who are really into it, like push hard for it. Like it's a great record. And also it just kind of establishes Father John Misty, perhaps the way he had always seen himself as this like hardworking troubadour type who it's really just about the music. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we, this is a recurring theme on our show that we feel that, uh, you know, Josh Tillman has robbed us of content. <laughs> Very selfish. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. The
0: podcaster part of me is upset with him because. He's not giving interviews anymore, and he's not making fun of music critics on Twitter, and he's not doing all the things that he did five, six years ago, which is, I'm sure, much better for him from a mental health standpoint. I I would imagine that he feels much better not being in that world anymore, but for us, selfishly, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. (laughs) We we, We could use that stuff. I mean, to me, the answer to this is Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think Unlimited that's I think
1: that that has to be it. But I don't know. Like you're talking about like how Father John Misty fans, like the people who are into that record, the people who are into Father John Misty are gonna like show out for it. I mean, is there like this kind of secret cabal of like Chili Peppers heads who are gonna I don't even remember Love, is it love unlimited? I like really check myself. See, if it's
0: I can... unlimited love. Ah. I, I I looked it up as we were <laughs> uh, talking. I I googled it just to make sure. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, this was their first record with with John Frusciante in uh, you know what what like fifteen years, sixteen years, um, and there was a lot of hype. I think with this record. I remember when that first single "Black Summer" came out, where Anthony Kiedis is singing like a pirate. That was kind of a moment. That, was, that kind of that, influenced that Phoenix song, don't you think? <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Uh, but I don't know if they put out any other singles. Or maybe I just didn't notice it. I, I don't know. I feel like for as big as that band is, there just wasn't as much attention on it as I would have expected. But, you know, they're going to be playing stadiums. I, I think that's later this summer. Yeah, great, a big... great
1: opening acts as well.
0: Yeah, so, you know... I they are at the phase in their career i'm sure where you know this album is Bridges to Babylon you know i mean it's just you know, like it's like their late period stones album where the, the people who love them they just want to see them play live so which is fine you know they're going to go on the road and make a gajillion dollars yeah and,
1: i'm looking at the uh i'm looking up. at the tour and it's all baseball stadiums i mean in san diego they're playing petco park with heim and thundercat uh, you know, Timo. Like, I'm just gonna like Truist Park, Nissan Stadium, Comerica Park, Soldier Field. Um, and you could see him. You could see him in Philadelphia with Strokes and Thundercat at uh, yeah, at, at Citizens Bank Park. That'll be good. You know, and I would go see. You know, they're not coming to my
0: neck of the woods. I would go see the Chili Peppers. I'd go see the Chili Peppers. Tour. Be a pretty fun night out in the summer. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if anyone's listening out there who's connected with the Chili Peppers, we'll
1: do an indie cast from the parking lot. Of the chili pepper show it'll be great i'm looking at the set list and it is pr- so shockingly heavy on stadium arcadium
0: oh okay well maybe not then maybe <laughs> i will stay home if, if that's
1: the case um let's move on to our next category you want to present this one ian um so this is the them i'm trying to like uh project incredulousness <laughs> uh album of the year so um You know, as as big music narrative nerds, we always like to look at the Metacritic scores, the album of the year type scores to see, like, what are the highest ranking albums of that year? Like which ones have gotten the most critical consensus? And before we get into this category, Steve, uh, do you remember what was the what what were the most critically acclaimed albums of twenty twenty one? Like, the highest Metacritic scores, if we're talking about, like, stuff that had gotten 10 10 reviews or more.
0: I'm going to guess something like The Weather Station would probably be up there. Um, I'm trying to remember what else came out last year. Yeah, That seems like a long time (laughs) ago. Um, Well, The War on Drugs Record came out, I know, that year, of course. I'd remember that. Um, Yeah, I I would guess The Weather Station would be the number one.
1: All right, so I'm looking at it right now, and most of these in the top ten are like British rappers um, that like got re- like Gets, Dave, um, and Self Esteem, who's like a pop act. Um, and there's like a Nick Cave album. As far as and Biffy Clyro, um, yeah. the if we're talking about like top ten, more than ten releases, the number one Turnstile, Glow On. I did not know. Oh. That okay that makes sense wolf alice is up there as well and yeah weather station probably number three so um yeah but you know for for so for this category um turns out like that one makes a lot of sense but this is the one where we see the biggest discrepancy between critical acclaim and what we've heard seen or felt um you know, like the, the the workout warrior, the workout warriors. If we're going to use NFL draft terminology, the ones that put up great numbers and we don't see that translate to on field production. So, uh, the ones that we're going to talk about this year thus far. Okay, we've not talked about Just Mustard, as you could probably tell from the band, they're British. Uh, they're kind of post punky. They have the highest Metacritic score, I believe, of this year aside from Rosalia. It's like in the '90s. It came out a few weeks ago. Kevin Morby is killing it this year. Uh he's up there pushing I like Kevin Morby. Yeah. I
0: like Morby more than you do, but I understand why he'd be on this
1: list. But yeah, this is like exceedingly high. Uh Pusha T, Denzel Curry, who's a rapper that, you know, plays all sorts of rock festivals and Harry Styles. So, not a lot of egregious errors, but ones that are just really interesting. Um I mean, I would say Harry Styles is egregious.
0: That has an 89 a Metacritic 83. That's way t- 83. Okay, way too high. And the dialogue around him again. You know, I wrote a column about this. Uh, and I'll just repeat something I wrote in my review that if he looked like Ed Sheeran, he'd have the credibility of Ed Sheeran. I just think there's such a facade to him of he's this nice guy. He's a very beautiful man. He like wears dresses on stage, which gives him a uh, you know, a transgressive, progressive edge to his image, but his music is completely bland. Totally bland. And I, I when I read rave reviews of his records, uh, or even like the review that Pitchfork did, I think they gave him like a seven point two after being yeah. pretty critical of his previous record, Fine Line. That is uh, correct. Seven point two. That, that our friend Jeremy Larson wrote. Um I don't I, I don't get the critical claim with him at all. I, I I think, again, that if he were not as uh, attractive from an image standpoint, that his music would be taken a lot less seriously. And I think on the musical merits, he should be taken
1: a lot less seriously. I would say that I agree with you on that front. And also, I think there's a degree with this category of like albums that really don't have, have it, whose critical claim hasn't translated into people actually liking it. I think people legitimately if not necessarily for the most legit reasons like love this dude um, that's true yeah I, I, undeniable I, I believe that people believe what they say about harry Styles. right if that makes oh yeah sense. totally totally um but for me i'm gonna go like uh, again a little dark horse candidate and say push a t um so this album it's almost dry it is widely critically acclaimed as most push a t albums tend to be uh he's in that run the jewels lane where it's somehow people don't get tired of him doing the same exact thing album after album after album after album. And it's also an event. It's I jokingly call it dad rap, not because like it's you know talking about the same stuff the national might, but or Wilco, but it's the sort of rapper that 45-year-old dudes can feel okay about liking, you know, like not necessarily like, you know, the roots type rap, but stuff that's like a little more aggressive, but nonetheless, you know, would fit in at a festival alongside, say, like, My Chemical Romance. Um, I This is a little bit like tinfoil hat here, but as far as, like, why I picked Pusha T in this category uh, is that, you know, besides the fact that most people I know who, you know, are super into rap don't see this as, like, a you know, any way comparing to his best work— I think that like Pusha T is a way for people to kind of launder their ongoing Kanye stand like in a safer <laughs> way because I mean the Kanye stand still is very strong although it tends to be a little more like Reddit like <laughs> like Donda got na- nominated for Grammys right it still made a bunch yeah. of year endless and I think if you're like a true believer in Kanye you can sort of kind of use Pusha T's albums, which are largely produced by Kanye, as a way to kind of keep your toe in that water. Um, But for me, it's just like watching someone fill out a crossword puzzle. It's like, (laughs) I mean, like, like, why am I feeling so, like, not moved by, you know, this guy doing, like, like kingpin sort of like coke dealer rap it and to be fair like i kind of thought that about jay-z's 444 as well which is another thing i would call like quite literal bad rap um
0: yeah i mean i think you're right in that th- there probably is a certain segment of rap fans who like do f- that who feel no connection to zoomer rap or like even like you know younger millennial rap you know, like the more sort of internet oriented music, like where, where, the direction that's taken in like recent years and like push a T, he is this familiar uh, face. I mean, he's been around like for 20 years, right? I mean, like, like the like first clips that. record came. Yeah. So I mean, it, for the longest time, you didn't have like rappers who still had an audience going into their forties and fifties, but like now the genre has been around long enough where you do have that. And You're probably right in that it does appeal to that audience that still wants to buy new rap records or, like, listen to new rap records, but they don't necessarily want to listen to, like, the stuff that's on the cutting edge, you know, because it doesn't communicate with them anymore. And that genre moves so fast that I could see how that could be pretty head-spinning if you were, like, deeply invested in that genre, but you get to a certain age where it's just, like, passed you by a little bit. Yeah. So the so the familiar pleasures of a push a t record, I'm I'm sure would be comforting
1: for that audience. Yeah. I used to review rap records very often, Uh, and then like I took like a month, like six months off, and I was just fucking toast. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a. I mean, you have to be. I mean, more than any other genre,
0: I think you have to really be into it at this point to know what's going on because it it does move so fast. People move in and out of favor with just like rapid quickness. So yeah, I, you know, God bless the people that can keep up with that. I'm like way too old at this point to do that. Um, Let's get to our next category. Most fun narrative of 2022. This is a positive one. We've had a couple taken shots at people categories. So it's nice to have a little positive, you know, good news categories here. Uh, Nominees are turnstile becoming actually big. We've had a lot of turnstile talk already in this episode, but, you know, turnstile, you know, being on the road really, I think, showed how big that band is. You know, it goes beyond just all the nice reviews that were written of their last record. You could really see that happening this year. Lots of videos on social media streams, which was cool to see. Uh, The return of Animal Collective. I guess this speaks to our audience. (laughs) Yes. They were happy to see Animal Collective come back
1: with a good record. Yeah, that's the important part because they've made a lot of music.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they haven't technically gone away. But like in terms of, you know, coming together like the Avengers under this shield, they hadn't done that in a while. And they made a very fun, poppy, uh, accessible record. Uh, The Return of Indie Sleaze. Uh, which was was a big narrative this year. I don't know if that's actually manifested itself yet, but it's fun to think that it might actually be a real thing. Uh, And then the number of quality indie double albums and also non-indie as well. There were a lot of big albums this year. And uh, even though I know I took some shots at the 1975 last week for making sprawling albums, I generally like big double albums especially from bands that haven't done that before so we had that this year so for you like who's the winner
1: out of these uh nominees so you sort of alluded to this and i don't know if the return of indie sleaze is real or just sort of like i don't know the vibe shift that we talked about last year this thing that gets written about in the new york times and hasn't really manifested in the real world um but you know i I'm like, I'm going to say The Return of indie sleaze, if only because I really want that to happen. I think that there's, like most, you know, fun narratives, it's ones that vindicates, like opinions that I already hold. One of which is that, um, you know, for all of like the problematic shit that was going on throughout the, particularly the late aughts, that the music, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of like just dumb fun to it and uh, maybe it's the fact that I work in mental health but like I'm a little tired of like seeing album rollouts that you know focus on a person's mental health diagnosis before the genre or just the earnestness that's kind of taken over which understandably so given you know the world in which we live but you know we need health we need klaxons like we need like the first Dan Deacon uh, album (laughs) actually yeah uh, by the like I, I it we're not doing recommendation corner, but like I would highly recommend that you, Steve, and anyone else listening, go find the um, live performance of the Crystal Cat uh, by Dan Deacon. It's hosted by Pitchfork TV, I think. You can find it on YouTube. If you want to remember like the late aughts in indie rock in its purest form, just 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 do it. Go for it. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that like we get some kind of like real dance punk, not like post punk, but like dance punk, like the rapture type stuff happening or, you know, the rave rock from the UK of that time, maybe some justice Bloghouse. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. to. I'm ready to put on the American apparel deep V neck again. I love the
0: second Justice record where it looks like there's like the stone cross on the cover instead of the
1: drawing of the cross. That's like on the first album. Audio, like it's a... audio, visual. There's one good song. There's one song called Parade on there, which fucking rules.
0: Yeah, like a bunch of songs sound like Def Leppard on that album. <laughs> yes. It's such a fun record. I love that album a lot. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm with you. I think for all the positive aspects of acknowledging... Uh, mental health and and being respectful of that and talking about it openly, which I think has been really beneficial for people, there does come a point where you feel like it's been commodified, the conversation around that. It it just becomes like another way to sell a record because that's something that becomes an easy hook for people if they're trying to make a record feel more momentous. And I think we've... Cross that line at some point in recent years, where it does feel a little—I don't want to say phony, but it cynical, it, cynical. or It's—it it's, feels a little cheapened at some point, where it just becomes a an aspect of the PR campaign, and there is a cookie cutter element to that that I think is again cheap in that conversation. I would like to see Indie Sleeves come back. I think that's a fun narrative. I'm going to go with the double albums thing. I, I've been really happy to see these big statement records come out. And I think it's part of why I think this is such a, a great year so far for music. Again, obviously, Big Thief, New Warm Dragon, I Believe in You is the one that really stands out for me as being a great double album this year. But you also had the Beach House record that came out that uh, Once Twice Melody that was pretty well received i feel like people didn't go as crazy about that as other beach house records but i get the sense that that record's going to have some legs i think people you know are still digging into that one of course we have the kendrick lamar record that came out which was structured as a double album it's not quite the length of a double album but still i appreciate that aspect of it he's definitely trying to make a grand statement a melancholy in the infinite sadness, if you will, of his catalog. And then you have the the recent Wilco record, Cruel Country, which is maybe a little overlong, but I think for the most part justifies its length. I think the songs on there are pretty consistently great. And you know, I'm such a fan of being there, the first Wilco double record, so it's fun to see them go back to that and just make a really big record that deals with America and big themes and asking pointed questions about the direction of the country. Um, it's great. And I hope to, you know, that we have more of those in the second half of the season. It feels like people are, uh, you know, they were so held back by the pandemic and we're still in the pandemic, but people are getting out in the world more in 2022. And it just feels like people are, are unleashing the Kraken musically speaking this year. And I, I'm pretty excited about that. Didn't
1: you say that Billy Corgan was working on like a triple album when you were? Yes.
0: (laughs) Triple rock. And I think 33 songs, uh, like the rock opera, he so always rock says opera that too. though. Yeah. What if that was amazing though? Like, what if it was? What <laughs> if that was like an amazing record? Like, how cool would that be? You know, or even if it was like pretty good, I, that would be a pretty amazing thing to have. I think
1: if Smashing Pumpkins release a pretty good album, it's going to be like upgraded to fucking amazing. So
0: yeah, that's true. We'll and we'll do that on this show. We will overrate the hell out of a pretty good Smashing Pumpkins record. Mm. You better believe that one. Uh, okay, I think we have a. We have time for one more category. We'll try to squeeze it in here before they play us off with the turnstile riff. Uh, Do you want to present this one? Yeah.
1: So uh, this is a category I'm really into because we talk about, like in the previous categories, about how some albums have longer legs, you know, long tail type appreciation. Um, This is the 2021 album that you've, quote, rediscovered. Uh, You know, I know that for me, after I make my year-end list, I kind of avoid listening to that albums from that year for a while and then i ended up coming back to them um so the ones that would rank higher than it did in 2021 if you revoted so we came up with a few um black midis uh out their second album porter robinson which i don't think is an artist we've talked about on here lorraine which i think may have been a recommendation corner and wednesday which was technically 2021 but they've just been in the news so much that i think that they deserve to be in this category as well.
0: So I'm going to go with a record that I totally slept on in 2021. I didn't even rank this album. I don't think I really even heard it until early this year. And uh, it's really become one of my favorite records like, of of 2022, even though it came out last year. And that is Twin Plagues by the band Wednesday. And this band has been in the conversation uh, recently because they did that viral tweet about South by Southwest, uh, talking about just the expense that it takes for a band to play that festival. Um, and I hope when people saw that tweet, if they weren't familiar with this band, that they actually like listened to their music. Because for me, it really is in this great wheelhouse where you have some country influences to what they're doing. And it's matched with... Um, they've been called like a shoegaze band, but it reminds me more of like nineties rock. Like I know, for instance, that they're big fans of smashing pumpkins. They actually put out a covers record this year called, uh, mowing the leaves instead of piling them up, which, uh, includes a cover of perfect. One of the singles from Adore, uh, which, uh, they do a really good job covering that song. I'm also a big fan of the band's guitarist, MJ Lenderman, who put out a record this year called boat songs. That's, probably a top five record for me i like it a lot but twin plagues is such a such a good record i really feel like this band uh with their next album i really hope that they level up because they seem like they're poised to really take a leap um i think there's a lot of people like me who slowly discovered them over time and we weren't there when the record dropped but like we're excited about this band and like there's a lot of people i think who are primed to coronate this band if they can nail the next record. So I'm really hoping for that. But yeah, that would be my winner in this category, Twin Plagues, by Wednesday.
1: How about you, Ian? Yeah, I think Wednesday's definitely got the juice. So whenever they drop... Like, all the things that you mentioned, the cover album, the MJ Lenderman solo album, like, they're just... They are are definitely next um, if you're investing in the futures market. Um, For me, I was... A lot of people who I really trust and also don't really listen to a lot of um, electronic music were super into the Porter Robinson album. Um, Porter Robinson is... I interviewed that guy back in 2014 before he played... I think it was like an anime festival in in Los Angeles. It was either an anime festival or like a video game festival. One of those two types of things. And his music uh, was so of that era of like ultra festival pop that sort of sounded like passion pit and M 83. Um, you know, not like particularly like deep, but extremely enjoyable. Um, and he kind of like disappeared. He didn't, it didn't strike me as someone who like really enjoyed making albums and touring. Then he came back in 20, uh, 21 with a record, um, and called nurture. Um, I loved it immediately because it has a green album cover with him in like a grassy field, very uh, 2016 emo. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's so out of step with anything happening, either like culturally, sonically, politically, that it seemed like, it's like one of those records where it's like, yeah, we're going to need like seven more years for us to revisit this sound. And I think that's what made it so poignant to me. It's someone just saying, like, like the first single was called Look at the Sky, where he, the chorus is about, like, hey, I'm still here. Almost like uh, The Everlasting Gaze by The Smashing Pumpkins, which did not make your list. Um, and, yes, I know. Uh, many people were
0: shaking their fists at me over that one. So, uh,
1: I understand. The Fickle Fascination of an Everlasting God. But um, yeah, so I put on this record because it's just a great escape um, for me. It's like when I don't want to be reminded of the narrative, when I don't want to be reminded of like the things that I find to be so tiresome of modern music, I put on Nurture and it's transportive uh, for 50 minutes. And I imagine that like if you're from that world... you know, I, I don't think you can. You would have like the Glass Beach or the Delete Zeke album that I love so much the past couple of years without that guy. Um, yeah, I, I think that if any of those names that I had mentioned to you still ring bells, uh, Porter Robinson, uh, like that's an album I feel like I'm. I don't think he's going to release another one probably for ten years, so I'm going to be uh, going back to that one a lot.
0: Well, I haven't heard this record yet, but the way you're describing it is really make me want to put it on. So I'll probably cue that one up at the end of this episode which is where we're at right now so ian have a fun trip hopefully uh, we haven't missed anything during your vacation here and this episode will be well received by our audience and they won't be missing us
1: uh talking about whatever discourse happens the week that you're gone and if not well i'll just like record it on my iphone it'll be like our machina too Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> and we'll give it away for free, like every other episode. <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends in real time next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. <laughs>